You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have David Bell back on the show with me. David is one of my all-time favorite authors. I think all of you listeners know that. I look forward to this time of year, every year, when a new David Bell book comes out. And uh, it's been maybe a month or two ago uh, that I got uh, the ARC um, the advanced reader copy of his brand new book, Kill All Your Darlings. And I, I've just been listening to the audiobook uh, that his publisher sent me uh, just a couple of days ago and uh, just experiencing this book all over again. And uh, David, I have to say, this is probably hands down my favorite book of the year so far. I know we're about halfway through the year, but it's going to be. Uh, it's going to be tough competition for the rest of the year. Um, welcome back to the show, David. Thank you. That's high praise. I mean, if you want, we can just say the year is over. Yeah. Uh, we'll it, just call this the end of the fiscal year. Or... Yeah. And you can, yeah, well, it kind of is right. The end of the end of June. So you can, you, yeah. So I'll take it. That's very nice of you to say. And I really appreciate that. Well, it's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, Kill All Your Darlings is, and, and we're going to talk more about it in a few minutes, but one of the things that I love, love, love about this book is it's it, it's kind of one of these guilty pleasures for writers to, to when you're reading a thriller about a writer. It, it kind of goes deep, and it's some inside baseball, and, and I just love it. it it's fantastic. Well, writers are strange people, as we all know. So uh, it's inevitable that you could write a thriller about a writer uh, who has stolen a thriller that <laughs> makes him. Yeah. So writers are chock full of stuff you can write about. Absolutely. Um, before we get to talking uh, all about it, and uh, we'll we'll kind of bury the lead for a minute, but. Um, David, I don't know if you've noticed, but the last year, uh, you know, since we talked last has kind of been um, uh, I, I want to watch my language here uh, because I know this is a family show, but, uh, you know, kind of a kind of a crap show with um, <laughs> with everything going on. Uh, when we talked last time, you know, the the world had kind of closed down for a while and we didn't really know what was coming uh next but we had hopes and i think we're finally now starting to come out of all of that uh at, at as someone who is a writer and who also uh teaches at university how has this last year been for you i think it's been as strange for me as it has been for everybody i know that i'm very fortunate because my i was able to uh, keep my job and I was able to do my job online a lot. And so unlike a lot of people, I didn't suffer that. I, I didn't lose my job. Um, and obviously writers are able to work anywhere. So if you're at home, you can write. But I have heard from, you know, it's interesting among writer friends of mine, some had the response that 
they were not able to get as much writing done when they were at home. Now, some sometimes that's because people have children, and, and if you're locked up in the house with your children, you're not going to be able to get a lot done. Um, so, some writers said, though, even writers, I think you had children, said they were able to get more done because they were at home. It's just, it's interesting to think of the variety of responses that people had to being locked down. Um, yeah. But but yeah, you're right that at least there's there's some light and it's it feels better to think that way and to look ahead a little bit. Well, an interesting thing that I found, David, is that, uh, you know, a lot of writers that I talk to um, work from home and, you know, have a home office and and they don't get up and, and get dressed and go to a job uh, necessarily on a day to day basis. Um, and, and even with those circumstances where a lockdown wouldn't wouldn't affect you very much on the surface, there was still this this mental aspect of, you know, the, the world's going through crisis and, uh, you know, it, it just didn't feel the same as, you know, sitting down on a daily basis to, to work on whatever it is you're working on it. This, this sort of, um, this overarching kind of feeling that we were all sharing seemed to affect a lot of people. Yeah. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, the, there was so much information, so it was easy to get distracted by the news every day and trying yeah. to just figure out what was going on as all this new stuff was happening. And I know initially we probably all thought, well, you know, we'll be locked down for a couple of weeks, you know, a few weeks, a month, maybe. And then I think as the day stretched on, I think probably everybody was suffering from some form of depression and anxiety. Uh, you know, everybody, like you said, everybody felt the weight of this going on and the suffering and nobody could do their usual routine and and people couldn't see family members and and couldn't see friends and all of that. So I do think everybody probably felt a collective burden, uh, whether they lost their job or had someone in their family be sick that would be worse. But I mean, even people who were untouched in those ways, I think felt the burden of the lockdown and, and being stuck at home and not in your usual routine. It was just, I think it was difficult for everybody. Uh, you, you mentioned kind of the, the being inundated with news and the, uh, you know, new information coming out on a daily basis. Uh, my state released information on a daily basis of, of new, uh, COVID infections, new uh, uh, test results and and things like that and had it broken down by county and it came out about 10 a.m. every morning and I remember sitting at my computer at like five minutes till 10 hitting the refresh button just because it, it just seemed like the only thing you could do is just find more information and until I eventually just had to stop you know, I, I just had to tear myself away and because it wasn't doing any good, but only making me more anxious. And um, being a thriller writer does uh, not that not that I expect you to write a, a, a pandemic thriller. I, I actually think those are, are, are going to be few and far between hopefully coming out of this. But did did that general sense of uneasiness and uh, getting the feeling that the whole world is out of sorts, did, does that fuel your creativity at all as a thriller writer? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, 
on the one hand, writing at any time requires, I think, a writer to compartmentalize because we have to find time to write and we have to separate ourselves from the rest of the world to find time to write, whether that's from a day job or a family or whatever's going on, we have to try to block out the world and write. So I think most writers probably have really good skills in that direction. And so it that probably served us well when it was time to sit down and write that we could say, okay, I'm going to shut the world out for for an hour or whatever to try to get this done. So I think in some ways that that mechanism probably helped writers, at least in terms of getting writing done. But inevitably that stuff is gonna seep into whatever we do. I remember, I don't know if it if it's in Kill All Your Darlings or if it's in my next book for that's coming out next summer. But I remember writing a line about uh, just metaphorically somebody said oh that infected him like a virus or whatever and when i wrote that i thought oh my gosh the vi you know like you use the word virus and that that word has a totally different implication now or that metaphor has a totally different implication now um and, and so i i think inevitably we're going to see that seep into books my next book that's coming out next year is a locked room story and so it's interesting to think about, oh, writing a locked room story when we've all been locked in our houses for right. a year, you know. So all those things are going to be, it's going to be interesting to watch the way that affects writing and stories. Even like, like you said, if people aren't directly writing a pandemic story, because maybe nobody wants to read that, but, <laughs> but you're going to be reading things through that lens a little sure. bit, right? Yeah. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device. There's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and 3 acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, 
to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new, easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting. And we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. So, David, if we know anything about the publishing industry, uh, when when Kill All Your Darlings is is out on the shelves now, uh, when people are hearing this, it came out yesterday. Um, this book has had a bit of a life uh, before that the life it sees with everyone else. It, it's you know the publishing industry kind of moves uh, slowly, and and there's a kind of a method to to the whole publishing madness. But what? Where were you on this book last year during all of that? Well, I, the idea, you know, I came up with the idea and made the outline for the idea, all of that before, and then started writing the book before the pandemic started. Because I can remember I had been working on the book for, I mean, meaning actually writing the first draft of the book for several weeks or a number of weeks when the news started to come in about, you know, at the beginning of March about, oh, you know, this, this, this is going to be bad. Oh, we're going to have to lock down on and on and on. So I'd already started writing the book. I already had the idea for the book. And then I can remember talking to some writer friends who were saying, okay, we're writing books now during this pandemic as this is unfolding. But these books are not going to come out for another year or more than a year. So do we have to incorporate the pandemic into the book in some way? You know, the way if you if you wrote a book in 1947, would you pretend like World War II hadn't happened? Or would just characters inevitably say like, oh, yeah, that was before the war or, or when, you know, when when he came back from the war? So. That was an interesting question that everybody had to think about who was in the middle of writing a book at the time that this was all unfolding. That That is an interesting uh, dilemma that that people are definitely going to have to reckon with uh, in in the the near future that that's going to be. Uh, I, I was talking with my kids uh, last night or the night before, and they, they said it's going to be interesting 20, 30 years from now when when kids 
are looking back at photos of, of this past year and, you know, have these these questions. Why was everybody wearing a mask and why was, uh, you know, wh- why was life so upended then? And it's it, it's going to cause all of us to to look at how we tell the stories of of what life has been like. Yeah, my parents and my dad is dead but my mom is still alive and she's old enough my mom is 89 years old so she can she was a child and has memories of world war ii and i can remember my parents talking about rationing and and you know rationing coupons and like collecting scrap metal and stuff like that during world war ii and and so it's going to be interesting to see the things like you're saying that we look back on, uh, you know, the mask wearing and the being locked down and school being online. And uh, I have a niece who has not been, she's, she just graduated from high school, but she was not, you know, she, they, her school did not have a prom and did not have in, in-person graduation was the first time she had seen her classmates in a year and whatever. So all of that stuff is going to be an interesting marker for people to look back on. And then kids who kids who are born in the future, right, are going to, you know, their parents are going to talk about that and say like, oh, well, you know, in, in 2020, this was going on. And it's going to be the way we look back at World War II or the Kennedy assassination or whatever and think about those things. So it's going to be interesting the way everybody looks back and remembers and talks about all this stuff. For sure. Um, let, let's shift gears for a minute, David. Nobody wants to talk about a pandemic anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, hey, you brought it up. I know. I know. I couldn't uh, help sorry. it. I'm no. sorry. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Um, but you mentioned a minute ago um, your outline that, that you started working on for this book. And, and you and I have talked in the past about this argument or this delineation that we draw between pantsers and plotters and something that we love to talk about in the writer community. Um, and, and you are obviously a plotter, um, but you're also a professor of, of English and, and you founded and you direct an MFA program in, in creative writing. Um, what do you tell your students about the importance of plotting and thinking about a story before you start writing? Or do you communicate to them that both ways are valid and that you should pursue which one feels right to you? Yeah, the thing I tell my students is part of becoming a writer and having a career as a writer is that everybody has to figure out what works for them. And it can be as simple as, I mean, for instance, we always hear stories about writers who get up first thing in the morning, they get up at five o'clock in the morning and they write their thousand words and then they go about their day. And I can remember hearing those stories and feeling like, I don't want to get up at five o'clock in the morning, right? (laughs) Amen. And the truth is everybody has to figure that out. I went to graduate school with a guy who did the exact opposite. He wrote all night. He was a night owl. He wrote all night and he would write till the sun came up. And that that's how he did it. Um, So I always tell my students that they just have to figure out what works for them. Are they the person who wants to get up at five in the morning or are they the person who wants to write at five in the evening? and, and all of that is dictated by people having kids and jobs and families. Most writers have all those things making demands on their time. 
And the same is true of the outline or not outline camp. Writers have to figure out which works for them. And there are plenty of writers who just wing it. And I cannot argue with their success as they just wing it. Um, the only issue that I would add to my students is that when someone does become published and you're working with a publisher, the publisher may require some sort of summary proposal outline that you have to put on paper and you have to show them something so that they say, okay, this person has some clue about where their story is going before we hand them a check and say, okay, go off and start writing your book. So that does come into play at some point. Now, I also know writers who will approach that in many different ways. I have a writer friend who says, yeah, I just, I just make something up to show them and, I, and it's, I'm not bound by that. I, then I just go do my own thing and let the chips fall where they may. Um, and some writers, <laughs> and, and I won't mention his name, but this is the way, I mean, the way I do it is I really want to work out a lot of those issues with my editor early on so that everybody's on the same page so that if there is a, a potential pitfall in the plot, then that gets worked out in advance. You know, if, I, if I'm going to put my main character in a corner, I want to know that I can get that character out of a corner before I've written 250 pages and realize I can't get the person out of a corner. So I like to have that stuff worked out as much as possible. Other writers feel like if they have that all worked out, then it's not as interesting to them to write the book or they feel not as motivated to write the book or whatever. And that's fine. I, everybody has to figure out their own way of doing it. Um, and that's all part of just experience and the process of, of writing over years and, and figuring all that out. Well, and, and it would seem that at least thinking through the the story ideas and, and playing scenarios out to their logical conclusions might prevent you from getting to the final act of a book and having uh, a story about a serial killer all of a sudden um, be a story about space aliens. I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, any really, really, really successful um author who's a, a pantser has done that but you know it you're gonna have to come up with something and and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't well i think we have all again there are lots and lots of successful writers who just wing it i think we have all read books in which we get near the end and the author pulls something out of thin air seemingly or something happens and we and it feels like the record skips a little bit and we say, well, where did that come from? Where did that revelation come from? And I'm sure we've had the opposite feeling where we've read a book that feels regimented and feels very planned and a little lifeless. And, and it feels as though, well, this there's not much, much energy and spark on the page and maybe that person overplanned. I think either one can happen. Um, I think the ideal situation, this is what happens with me, the ideal situation is that a writer has a, a plan for what's going to happen and they know what the book is about and they know where it's going to go. But along the way, some surprises crop up. 
characters do things in surprising ways or some idea pops into a writer's head and they say, well, wait, wait a minute, maybe maybe they could go to this place or maybe this character could show up here. I think that's probably the ideal that it that it that keeps writers on track a little bit, but there's still some surprise that happens along the way. Um, I can't imagine having no plan. I can't imagine just saying I'm going to set out and write a hundred thousand words, and I have no idea where it's going to go. That would terrify me. Um, but maybe I'm not as brave and carefree as other people. I don't know. In your book, Kill All Your Darlings, uh, Connor Nye is, uh, he's a, a college professor, but he's also a published author. Um, he's had some some trauma in his life, and he is, he kind of stumbles into a situation uh, where he makes some bad decisions. Um, where did, where did this, uh, this character of Connor come from for you and, and did did it ever feel like this was a little um, nefarious to or or uh, kind of deliciously evil to to be writing a character like this in in the situations that he found himself in? Yeah, I mean, he came from the partially, largely from the fact that I am a creative writing professor, and I've never written about a creative writing professor. The main character in Cemetery Girl was an English professor, but he wasn't a creative writing professor. So, so I've certainly thought about that. I've thought about the relationships that exist between professors and students, good and bad, and I've thought about the pressure that exists on professors who are trying to get tenure. Um, who are trying to, especially if you're a creative writing professor, you're trying to write creatively, you're trying to produce something that matters to you. But at the same time, there's this giant ticking clock in the background saying, you have so many years to get something published before you go up for tenure. And people may not know this, but tenure is really a do or die situation. If you don't get tenure at an institution, it's not like you're just being passed over for a promotion and they say, well, good luck, try again next year. If you don't get tenure, you're gone, you're fired, you're out. And so there is an enormous amount of pressure on people to produce something in time to get tenure or they lose their jobs completely. And so that is that is an inevitable giant ticking clock that I thought would work in a suspense novel and put an enormous amount of pressure on this character. And like you said, it leads him to make some very, very bad decisions that have huge consequences. So we wouldn't have um, Connor's situation without uh, a character like Madeline. Uh, how, How did she come into the story? Well, I've been teaching creative writing for a lot of years, and I've seen a lot of different students come through my classroom. And I I am not a big believer in something called talent. I don't think that in order to be successful as a writer, you have to be freakishly talented. I think most writers who succeed, they have some talent. I mean, they know how to write sentences. They know how to construct stories, they know what good ideas are, 
but they're not freakishly talented, off the charts talented. You know, when they were in high school or college, they might not have stood out in a creative writing class. Um, I certainly didn't. I, I don't know that anybody looked ever looked at me and thought, wow, that guy's freakishly talented. He's going to make it. So I don't necessarily think people have that. But every once in a while, as a teacher, we come across a student who really is strangely talented. I would probably say in 20 years of teaching or more than 20 years of teaching, I can think of a handful of students who really were freakishly talented. And Madeline is one of those people. She is really gifted as an undergraduate student. And when she turns in her honors thesis to Connor, and it's a novel about a murder, he sees that and he thinks, how on earth did she do that? I, Connor, am struggling to even get pen to paper. And then this 22-year-old student has all these gifts and so effortlessly puts these words on a page. So it's that dynamic of what is it like when you encounter someone who's really young, hasn't even finished college yet, and they have a lot of talent and a lot of gifts, um, and you come face to face with those that talent and those gifts. One of the um, kind of unspoken themes of of the book, and and is definitely touched on, uh, is this idea of writer's block. Um, you know, Connor has has got himself into this corner that would make him make bad decisions like this because he can't, and, and you spoke about earlier, the pressure of tenure and, and he needs to produce something and he's almost emotionally crippled, uh, you know, by, by some tragedy that, he, that he's had in his life. And also the pressure that's mounting, um, as a, a, a writer and a, a writing professor, what do you think about this idea of writer's block? Is it real? Um, and and what do you tell people to 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 help them unstick themselves? Yeah, it's really it's interesting because we we all hear that term and we accept that term, and it's almost as though that term writer's block. It I think sometimes we view it as though it's a disease that that people just have and and you just you either have it or you don't um and if you have it then we don't know what to do about it i think writer's block usually means one of two things either someone is well it can, it can mean a few things i think it means that you might the writer just might be afraid and lacking in confidence and i think everybody experiences that as a writer or as a creative person, we sit down to do something and immediately in the back of our minds, we start to hear the chorus of voices saying, oh, that's not a good idea. Oh, that sentence is terrible. Oh, you know, you're not good enough. Oh, you're not as good as everybody else. I think we all hear those voices in the back of our heads and those voices can, can cause us to freeze and to fear putting words down on the page. And it's that lack of confidence that causes, lack of confidence or self-consciousness, whatever you wanna call it, that probably does most people in and, and is probably the cause of most writer's block is just that. 
the terror of once I put something down, it, I'm exposed. And that, and we've all had the experience too when we sit down to start writing a story. On the one hand, that is, there are infinite choices when you start writing a story, right? The yeah. protagonist could be a man or a woman. They could be young or they could be old. Uh, they could live in a city. They could live in a town. They could, you, know, you could just go on and on and on. And that, on the one hand, that infinite variety of choices is liberating because, hey, I can do anything I want. I can play God and create this world here. But that infinite number of choices can also be paralyzing. I was just talking to someone the other night. It's like when we all sit down and we look at Netflix and we say, let's watch a movie tonight. And then there are all these choices. Well, I could watch this movie, but if I watch this movie, I won't be able to watch that movie. And it goes on and on. And sometimes we can spend an hour just scrolling through the Netflix you know, homepage, looking at movies and never watch a movie. So I think that is a big part of it is that lack of confidence. Obviously, there are times when writer's block comes up and, and it's because people are having some other bigger issue in their lives. Maybe they just don't have the time to do it. If someone is a, a parent or they have a sick parent or they're working two or three jobs or whatever, that that is not necessarily writer's block. That's just things in life are, are preventing that person from having some time and freedom to do it. Or in the case of Connor, he he has suffered a trauma and, and he is grieving. He's lost his wife and son in an accident. And so those kinds of things happen to people that that get in the way of their ability to work. And that's where the the artistic and the professional collide with the personal and whatever is happening to you personally begins to interfere with what is happening professionally, creatively. And that is a tougher thing to crack because that can just take time and maybe you need professional help. Who knows how we work through those things? There's, there's an infinite number of ways to work through those issues too. One of my favorite uh, characters in the book, if you will, was the addition of Grindel, the uh, um, Connor's dog. Uh, I was trying to think uh, back on your previous books, and I don't think that you've ever had a, a dog like this. In a, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but uh, did did Grindel? Uh, you know, he acts as kind of an emotional anchor uh, in ways. Um, as a writer, what did adding this character um, do for you? I've had dogs before in books, but I think that Grendel is unique because he's an elderly dog. Yeah. Um, and what, what he adds to the book is just that Connor is alone a lot. He lives alone. He's lost his wife and son. And the dog was a gift from one of his colleagues, Preston, who plays a role in the book. And um, basically, I, I think what you said about the dog being an emotional anchor and, and a barometer is that sometimes when people live alone, eat, not even when you live alone, but just when you have a pet, but in Connor's case, he lives alone, he talks to the dog about what's going on in his life. And the dog seems to understand and dogs can do this. Dogs can gauge our emotions. If you're upset, the dog knows you're upset. If you're happy, the dog knows you're happy. 
And so Grendel is tuned into Connor's emotions in that way. Um, my, I have an aunt who, um, when my uncle died, she was living alone, obviously, and she had a dog. And she would talk about how she talked to the dog. And, and that was how she worked through some things. She would talk to the dog. And I said to her, you know, as long as the dog doesn't start talking back, you're probably okay. I think it's good for you to have the companionship of a dog. And, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with people sitting there chatting with a dog about what's going on in their lives. And that's what Connor does. He kind of just says like, you know, here's, here, you know, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what's going on. And the dog seems to understand him in some ways. Kill All Your Darlings uh, is available everywhere now when you're hearing this. Uh, I, I don't want to give away some of the massive twists in this book, but they are um, they are very satisfying. Let me let me just put it that way. Um, one of my uh, it's, it's going to be on my top five list of the year. I know that if not number one, like I said earlier, um, it's available everywhere now. Grab it in Kindle edition or hardcover. Uh, however you like to read, uh, there'll be links and and also the audiobook the audiobook is phenomenal uh, of this have you have you gotten to hear it yet david i have heard little snippets of it i haven't listened to the whole thing um, but john lindstrom is the uh, the man who performs the book and reads the book and he's excellent uh, and i love his voice and i love what he brings to the performance of the book and he's doing uh, my next book too and I'm thrilled about that. So yeah, I just I love his voice, and and he really does do the book a great deal of justice. Absolutely, grab the book. Either use the links in the show notes, or if you have a local bookstore that's back open now, please go visit them and uh, and give them your business. Uh, Kill all your darlings. Available everywhere now. David, uh, where can people find you online if they want to dig into all the great stuff that you do? My website is davidbellnovels.com, and I am on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and it's all David Bell Novels, so they can find out uh, when I'm doing events, when books are on sale. They can just stop by and say, hey, uh, I like to hear from readers, so yeah, find me on those places. And we'll put links to all those places uh, to make it easier for folks to find you. David, always a pleasure to catch up. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Hank, it's always great to chat with you, and I really appreciate you having me on and all of your kind words about the book. Thank you very much. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.